All right, hello and welcome to the Combat Classics Podcast, uh, a St. John's College program. I'm Brian Wilson from Dallas, Texas. I'm Lise Van Boxel from Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I'm Jeff Black from Annapolis, Maryland. Today we're doing Aristophanes' play, The Birds, uh, first performed in 414 BC. I think that's right. These are the experts, though, not me. I'm just here for public <laughs> commentary. Uh, and we're going to tee it up to Jeff to intro the play and to start us off with our opening question. Yeah, thank you, Brian. So uh, The Birds is a comedy, and Aristophanes is a writer of comedies. And uh, so one of our challenges is going to be to try and figure out what's funny about this play. Um, the story here is uh, two exiles from Athens, old men named Euelpides and Pesaretus, um, are wandering around in search of a better city. They're sick of the lawsuits that they have to endure in Athens. Uh, they are guided by some birds that they've purchased, and they make contact with uh, what looks like a loose association of birds. And through their conversation with one of these birds that used to be a human being, oddly enough, uh, eventually Euelpides disappears and Pesaretus becomes a god. Um, and so this very strange uh, turn of events uh, is what we're going to be talking about. Now, why are we interested in talking about a comedy that has that kind of plot uh, in the Combat and Classics podcast series? Well, Looks to me, at least, and maybe this is something we can talk about, um, that uh, if you start wondering about whether your city is a good place to live, and one version of that wondering would be wondering about whether your city is a good place to uh, serve in the military for or to risk your life for, uh, Aristophanes is saying that somehow you're on the road whose end is that you become a god. And so I think uh, looking at that road should be of interest to all of our listeners, I hope. So I wanted to start with this question, guys. Um, what are the events that stand out on this road that uh, Pesaretus takes from the beginning of the play to the end, uh, starting as an exile and ending up, at least in name, as a god? What are the, uh, the, the events that stand out for you guys as interesting? And, and what do the birds have to do with all of this? Maybe uh, just to punctuate a few plot points, uh, sort of handholds, at least to begin with, and we can fill them out. Um, I think I'd like to touch on, first of all, what uh, Pestatyros says his motivations are for leaving the cities along with Euelpides. Um, I'll note that Pestatyros is often compared to Alcibiades, who is really the superlative general in Athens at this time. And there are a couple of jokes in the play to support that theory, one in particular where there's a joke about how somebody who um, wants a pair of wings so that he could he can um, escape difficulties with people he's approaching to recall them back for court trials for charges <laughs> that are against them. And while the person is gone, uh, the Athenians will seize the property of this person. Well, that's a direct reference, I think, to Alcibiades, who goes out on a mission with a charge against him of having desecrated the Hermes, which are gods in Athens. Um, and he, his men are very loyal to him. He's very, he's, he's, uh, um, as I said, superlative. And so the envious people who are scheming against him and trying to undermine him send him off on a mission with charges against him and they don't allow him to address the charges before he goes because they know he's too effective at talking to his men and the people. Mm -hmm. So they send him off and then trump up the charges and, and sort of build up opposition while he's gone. He can't meet it. Uh, he can't meet the charges. And then they, they 
send for him to come back and probably be killed, at which point he, he betrays Abbott mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in order to save his life. So I think that's the background, but we might want to look at how it's presented um, by Aristophanes here, because it's not exactly that fleshed out. Um, and then they encounter this human being who has been a man, but has become a bird, so that he's sort of their source of information as to what's at stake for them or what this might be like. Um, and then one thing in particular interests me that I think we want to discuss, and that is this character, this Alcibiades-like character, Pestatyros, does become a god. I kept expecting that at the end of the play, you know, he was going to be, uh, the gods would come down and destroy him, and they don't, and he succeeds. But there's this uh, interesting scene where he becomes king of the birds, but he's also eating birds. Yeah. Right, and, and so I think that's a, so that's a very important thing um, before we get to the end. So those are sort of my handholds. I'm sure there are others, but mm -hmm. that's, that's what I'm hanging on to. How about you guys? Mm -hmm. I think the thing that kind of jumped out at me is that, you know, the Pistotyros and Yelpides were seemingly tired of the kind of structure of the community that they were in in Athens, right? They were trying to escape the tax collectors, the debt collectors, um, the the laws uh, that they found burdensome, and they wanted a place where you know the the I think it was very early in the play the two worst things that could happen would be somebody invites you to a wedding or somebody castigates you for not having sex with their glistening son. So, um, and but what we end up with is you know when they start to form their new state, all of the same things, you know, a, a lawgiver shows up <laughs> as if, as if by, you know, just, just at the nature of the beast of forming a government or forming a city is that you're going to have all of these, uh, you know, people that fill these roles uh, are just going to show up. You're going to have the con man, you're going to have the priest, you're going to have the tax collector, um, you're going to have the um, defense contractor in, in Meton, you know, um, and it's just, it's, it's a, it seems to be a, uh, just the symptoms that you would expect whenever you form a state. And I think that also might be part of what happens between the two characters where, um, Yelpides just kind of disappears. We don't just, we just don't hear from him. And then Pisces, Pisces, my Greek is the third worst Greek on the podcast, by the way, just the Tyros, um, you know, becomes a god king, right? Because he's he's not only a god; he's also the 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 head of the city. Um, and you know, I really like that comment about you know eating the birds as the ruler of the birds. So you know, the ruler, the protector, the the one that you know receives the sacrifices um, and also eats his citizens um, to to sustain him. So I think you know, I got a lot from this as far as kind of commentary about what's inherent in kind of forming a government and what's the kind of side effects of forming a government. And then I think what Jeff kind of started off with, with the idea of, you know, looking at your, uh, your city and asking, you know, is this what we intended and is it worth it? Is it, is a great way to start? Yeah. Well, yeah. Can we just return to that, that first point, Brian, you raised, cause I, I do think the motives are important. So as you pointed out, uh, uh, you look, um, Euelpides says what he wants is, is to be invited to a wedding feast. 
And Pistatira says, I want to be chastised for, by a father for not noticing the, his beautiful son and making a move on him. Um, those things can be characterized as, as some, uh, some certainly do, as fairly crude hedonistic impulses. That is, the one is to eat and the other one is to have sex. And of course, that's, that's an obvious interpretation. But it also occurs to me that um, they are perhaps bastardized forms of higher things that we might want to take a little more seriously. That is, eat, uh, being invited to a wedding feast, yes, of course, it's about food, but it also seems to me to be uh, or to gesture toward friendship. Right? You, you go and celebrate a happy occasion with your friend as opposed to emphasizing the food factor. In uh, the Pistatiros, yes, sex, lust at the base level, but at the higher level, love. Mm-hmm. So, so it looks like the, um, the more generous and more serious desires of these two, which um, obviously are presented in the forms they offer for a reason, the lower forms, um, look like a desire for love and friendship. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's the beginning impulse. Yeah, that, that seems right to me. Um, one of the things that I was struck by is the difference between the, the very first thing we hear about why they've left Athens, right? In other words, it was a push out of Athens because of too many lawsuits. The difference between that and uh, the city that they claim to be drawn to, it's not like they both say, oh yeah, a city just like Athens but with fewer lawsuits, that's what we want. Um, if anything, these things that they've uh, that they're describing seem like um, anti cities or upside down cities, right? Cities that are um, the opposite of what cities normally are like, and as such are actually really well fitted to fulfilling some of the desires that human beings have. Right? Yes, but, and this yeah. I like the way you put it: the anti city, the opposite of a city, because very literally. Um, they carve out a space for the city in the sky. So what used to be the ground, um, the literal ground, is now reversed so that the air becomes the ground. If I tie that back to what I characterize as the higher motivations for this new city, that is love and friendship, um, it looks like a critique, in part, of that sort of impulse as the basis for foundation of a city. That is, that a city might require something other than love and friendship, namely things like laws as its foundation and it might aim toward at its highest level the sort of level that occupies the realm of the sky in our in our actual world metaphorically at least love and friendship exists there but in reversing it um Pistotyrus and Euelpides seem to um well we have to, we have to explore uh whether and how that works but let me try and frame it this way they're trying to found a city on passions um, for which it's not clear that there are natural limits, right? Mm-hmm. If they dispense with the law and the gods. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of unlimited desire for satisfaction of passions, even passions that might be characterized as quite high, um, end up having a baser form, which leads to a sort of a lack of limitation and therefore ultimately metaphorical cannibalism of your people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, maybe if we could just look at one passage, this might be helpful. This is around line 130 in the birds, and it looks to me like um, we've swapped uh, Peseretus and Euelpides in our memories here. Um, Peseretus is the guy who's uh, going after food, and Euelpides is the guy who's going after um, sex. 
But there's just one way of uh, phrasing this that I think underlines um, the characteristic of their uh, the characteristics of their hopes. So here's what Pesaretus says when Tarius, this is the bird who was once a human being, asks, what kind of city would you most like to live in? One where my worst troubles would be like this. A friend appears at my door one morning and says, in the name of Zeus on Olympus, make sure that you and your kids wash up and be at my place bright and early. I'm giving a wedding feast. Now don't let me down, otherwise you needn't visit me when I'm in trouble. And the end of that is really interesting to me. It's not just that um, Pesaretus is imagining a city where um, people are, are urging him to come to their place to eat, right? But he's also imagining a city where helping somebody out is treated as a privilege, right? In other words, it's not a city whose um, citizens are characterized by neediness, and maybe base needs especially, that have to be regulated by law because everybody's got them without limit. And, uh, you know, if there were no laws, then people couldn't get along with one another. People would eat but then not help, right? He wants a city where everybody's strong and helping one another is a kind of privilege, right? And maybe there is no city like that anywhere. I've actually got in my translation that that's Euelpides that says that one. Oh, so wow. little... <clears throat> There. I like your way better than my way. <laughs> this might be a, <laughs> this might be a bad uh, translation that I'm working from. No, it's it's fine. It's still an interesting point with the idea of kind of privilege to help that that goodness can just come naturally, and that doesn't have to be mandated by the city. Mm-hmm. And similarly with the other wish, right? It's not just that the fathers turned a blind eye, right, to the pursuit of their sons. Um, they encourage this pursuit. And doesn't that have to be because um, whatever the costs of that pursuit might be, the benefits outweigh it, right? In other words, the pursuers genuinely have goods that they're going to share with the pursued. Uh, So this is really an anti-city, a city characterized by beings that are uh, maybe already like gods. Yeah, Jeff, and what you say there helps me understand uh, a, a little bit, I think, about the disappearance of Euelpides. That is, um, in Aristophanes' plays, it's often the first person that sort of appears and speaks that explains what's going on. It's their, it's their plot, if you will, and Euelpides mm-hmm. is the guy that does that here, and yet he disappears. Right. Um, but that makes sense if we think, um, for a number of reasons, but at least because Euelpides is the one who is characterized as wanting to go to the wedding feast, which might be in a higher form of friendship. Mm-hmm. And the other character, Pistotyros, the Alcibiades one, is interested in sexual love, but maybe at a higher point, something deeper than just sexual love. But in the former case, the um, friendship as manifested attending a wedding, there actually is some sense of, of law, right? The, there's going right. to be... Yeah, a, a sexual union that's according to the law, not in the case of Pistotyros. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it looks to me like maybe Pistotyros actually, yes, I, I think he, he is superlative um, in Athens if it's, if it's uh, Alcibiades, at least as it generally appears that way. Um, of course, there's always Socrates who might be hired a different way, but um, that maybe that superlative person uh, has a hard time fitting in community. That is, Mm-hmm. The very characteristics that make them superlative um, aren't really shareable, right? It's like right. if you want someone who has the most eros or is best at being a general or has the best of X, Y, and Z characteristics, 
they ought to rule, not share their rule, mm-hmm. according to, to this theory, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's also, it's, it's interesting to me, the, the kind of role of the chorus in this and how that changes throughout the play. Like when the chorus is first introduced, um, you know, they're in, the, and they're just birds, right? But they're in, they're introduced in battle armor, right? At least some of them in, in my translation. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the hopo, Tyrius is trying to introduce the, the visitors and the birds immediately form up um, and get ready to attack because the, the other has arrived. Um, and then, and initially they are, you know, opposed to this. They are opposed to these new people coming in, um, and want to fight them. Uh, you know, and that, that changes, uh, by the end of the play. But at that point, you also have Pistotyros who's eating the birds. So how, how do we go from that initial, like, get out of here, you're not one of us, we will fight you, to, okay, you're our god king and you can eat us. Um, you know, what does that tell us? Yeah, I think we do have to maybe turn our attention now, having characterized Euelpides and Pisatyrus initially, um, to what happens. Um, we, we've already noted that Euelpides disappears, but maybe the more puzzling thing is, it looks like uh, Pisatyrus's desires are directed beyond the city, or maybe to um, single rule in the city. Um, but the way he states them, they're directed beyond the city, and yet he somehow is um, channeled into trying to found a city uh, with the birds, right? With the birds' uh, cooperation as their leader. Uh, now that uh, stage might eventually disappear, right? In other words, his final state might not really be in a political relationship with them because he's eating them. But uh, we could ask, uh, does he have some attachment to politics that he can't quite get rid of? Or is this just an intermediate stage where because he's facing the violence of the birds uh, who want to kill humans quite reasonably because uh, they're food for humans, um, you know, just that, that intermediate stage forces him to... Um, to use his powers of speech and persuade them that they have other interests, but that, that that's not really his interest finally. So is he interested in politics or is he already looking beyond politics like the beginning suggests? Do you think, I mean, um, as you stated at the very beginning, Jeff, these things might be connected um, in a way that's problematic and that we have to limit. That is, so Pistotyrus slash Alcibiades is this erotic character that he says he has a kind of yearning um, to move ever beyond himself. And um, so that accounts again for the sexual lust, but it might also lead to a desire to kind of be king of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And that then might actually move beyond itself to wanting to overthrow the gods, to be a god. So again, this notion of the erotic drive uh, that's just without limits here. Mm-hmm. It looks like it will go as far as it can, and that will include uh, trying to overthrow the gods. Mm-hmm. So if politics is properly understood as ruling and being ruled, then politics is only a phase in this. It's not characteristic of the final desire, right? That the final desire is a transpolitical, something like that. Does that seem fair? That does seem fair, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but just, just so I'm, I'm clear, you mean... Um, when ought to rule and be ruled in turn, but in this case we see somebody who 
wants to rule and they don't want to be ruled. Yeah, and in fact, uh, uh, the respect in which he becomes a god might be, um, or wants to become a god, might be more negative than positive. It's not clear that he's so interested in the, the smell of sacrifices as he is interested in walling off uh, the other gods, his competitors, right, from human beings. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so if we, if we hang on to that and then cycle back to Brian's question, how is it that he does this? I was struck by one, by another passage where... Um, I'm sorry, I don't have line numbers, but Pistotyros compares, uh, well, he says words have wings. Yeah. He's a very eloquent speaker, and he says, um, um, he's, it looks to me like he's able to manipulate the birds because he's such a good speaker, and he seems very confident in his speaking ability. But back to Jeff's initial point, so now the, um, Aristophanes has connected words to wings via Pestatyros, that's how he speaks of it, but um, also that Eros has wings as a kind of trajectory upward to, to leave the groundedness of the world um, until ultimately you might just be beating up against boundaries like the gods. Mm -hmm. So those two things look like it's connected. So if we go back to Brian's claim, isn't it that uh, Alcibiades via words finds a way to, we're going to make this a hypothesis, inspire eros in the birds so that they now have desires that they didn't have before they didn't know that they had mm -hmm. yeah that seems good to me uh it might help our listeners to know that these associations that we're making would not have sounded i think so strange to the greeks uh in homer there's a very frequent phrase that occurs winged words right so when when uh, people speak it's like something is flying uh, like a bird from one mouth into another's ear. And also, uh, Socrates had a tradition of um, drawing an etymological connection between the Greek word eros, uh, which means uh, erotic desire, uh, and uh, the Greek word pteros, which means winged, right? And we know that word from English words like pterodactyl. Right, and so uh, it, to a to a Greek ear and to the um, folks familiar with um, some of the other literature and philosophy of the time, these connections would make a lot of sense. Um, but I think they make sense for us too, right? Because words do um, move us to long for things that might not be present or might only be imaginary, right? Absolutely, yeah. And we can think of that as Alcibiades does here. Um, I mean, poetry and stuff comes to mind, but for our purposes here, in particular, political speech, right? That um, uh, sometimes people can actually uh, work the crowd up into such a frenzy that what they're saying actually is not intelligible, but they now are using what seem to be words, but they're just playing passion. So they have that, it's, they have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. Wasn't there something though in the poetry, and this might just be my translation, I don't know if your translation is, is different, but it seems like the chorus is, you know, speaking in, in poetry, mm -hmm. singing in poetry, and for Pete, help me out. Pestatyros. Pestatyros. The Alcibiades-like figure. Yes, <laughs> I'm used to saying Alcibiades, new <laughs> Greek names, takes me a little while. Um, for Pestatyros, I mean, he's he's mainly just using cunning right he's mainly just trying to con um mm -hmm. and then you know using kind of siege tactics in uh you know blockading the gods um and then negotiating for for greater power so you have this poetry of the chorus mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, contrasted by just kind of force of will uh, and cunning by Pizzatiros. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, why the chorus is at least mine written in verse, but Pizzatiros is not. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's um, a bit of a function of um, the way these plays were organized, right? In other words, there were certain portions that had to be in verse and certain portions that could be more prosaic. And I don't know a lot about those rules. Uh, They might be um, different for tragedy and for comedy, but I do think there were some rules of the form. Um, With regard to the kind of um, question of the meaning of what's going on, is it our sense that the birds are, um, the chorus of the birds are poetic from the beginning? and are a chorus from the beginning, or do they become poetic, right, and start to speak as a chorus and in this poetic way because of some um, influence that Pesoteris has had on them? Um, and I was just trying to look. I mean, uh, there's uh, the, the chorus leader gives this uh, very interesting story about how the birds are prior to all the other gods, um, and that is the basis, I think, for... Um, some of the hopes of the birds that they could um, replace the gods, right? Because they have a better claim to rule. Um, but I don't know whether Pesateris is um, the origin of that um, or whether the birds have that on their mind already. Well, um, let's, let's, I'm not sure either, but let's try it this way. Um, if it's if the birds have this on their mind, um, it has not led them to challenge the gods. Yeah, that seems right. Yeah. So so um, and since once Pestataros articulates it to them, it does um, make them think this way. My guess is it's really not uh, it's not on their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, although I would note a couple of things for somebody who wants to um, be free of law and have a society maybe founded on love and friendship or baser versions of that, it is strange to appeal to an origin thesis as the justification for rule. In other words, why wouldn't you just jump straight to force? So it seems to suggest um, maybe there's some in actual innate sense um, among these folks that one ought to have a legitimate claim as opposed mm-hmm. to just taking it. Yeah, I found the part. Let me let me read you guys a little bit. Uh, it looks like this, uh, the, the beautiful language later on that the chorus and the chorus leader um, use uh, is pure Pesateris in its origin. So this is around line 465. Um, Pesateris says he has a special speech all whipped up for the birds. And uh, he says, I think in an aside to Euelpides, Um, For quite some time, I've been trying to put something into words, a big, juicy utterance that will shatter these birds to the very soul, right? And then his procedure isn't um, exactly to give a speech. It's almost Socratic. It's a question and answer. And he says things like, um, didn't you know that you were once kings? Uh, Didn't you know that you were born before all the gods? Um, and when the birds say, no, we didn't know that, he says, that's because you're naturally ignorant and uninquisitive, right? And so this beautiful um, uh, story about the origin of the birds that the birds themselves uh, give voice to later on seems to have come from a kind of, um, I don't know, uh, 
uh, Socratic questioning is not quite right, but a kind of question and answer that puts some thoughts into their heads. Yeah, I think we could be, we, it looks like he's using sophistry or, or, or rhetoric as it's yes. in the bad form. So, uh, Plato Socrates allows for there to be proper forms too, although he he's, might be the only one who practices that. But uh, it's a perfect example of lying. Um, the passage you read, Jeff, it's helpful. That is, so he takes a people who seems like they don't have ambitions to overthrow the God, uh, appeals to some notion of justice, and then moves them off their attachment to justice by means of shame, mm-hmm. right? Um, and ultimately appetites. I mean, eventually, um, as in the case of Heracles, which we can talk about later, he, he moves them by their appetites, so inflames them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and if you need to found a city, you need a, a founding myth, right? You need to create some narrative that makes people feel special, right? Whether it's whether it's Athens or the Romans or America or whatever, um, you know, you need something that is concise and cogent um, in and of itself. As long as you keep the system boundaries tight, but might not stand up to scrutiny. And so that's it seems like what he's kind of doing with the rhetoric. Um, that he's employing right there. And it's, it's super interesting to me because right in that passage, um, he talks about the different, you know, again, he kind of hits on the different birds and he talks about the Persian fowl and he mentions earlier the Libyan bird. And so you have all these birds, um, which sounds a little bit like Homer as well, where we're kind of listing where all the ships came from. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, all these birds are free to go wherever they want. So why, why would they join a city? Why would they join this static place in the sky and be ruled when they have the freedom to go wherever they want? So what is it about the kind of, um, you know, is that some kind of commentary on an innate need to join some kind of group to feel some kind of belonging, even if it doesn't necessarily make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That re- yeah, that reminds me of Jeff's earlier question. So if the, the birds are flying around, we might think of them as already like passions or erotic insofar as they're winged. But um, it's only when they sort of become inflamed because of Pestatyros is speaking to them that they are willing to settle in a location and form a city. Mm-hmm. So it suggests to me that um, this is actually supported by Plato's Republic as well, that as soon as your appetites extend beyond sort of satisfying your fairly simple basic needs, you're going to have war because you, that's the only way to get more than you need, right, is mm-hmm. to take it. Mm-hmm. all comes back to Glaucon's footstool. All comes back to <laughs> and the relishes. Don't forget the relishes. <laughs> yeah, it's the relishes. That the <laughs> yeah, yeah. For our listeners that haven't read The Republic, we're just doing the hipster um, you know, B-side <laughs> references um, to The Republic. Um, you know, this, this is, I kind of want to get to, um, if you guys don't mind, just when the, the different <laughs> part, I mean, just as a general plug to our listeners on this, mm-hmm. it's laugh out loud funny. Like it, <laughs> it, the, the amount of like fourth wall breaking, um, you know, where they're, you know, pointing to somebody in the audience and saying, you know, Hey, you're a magistrate. You can just go and have sex with whoever you want or yeah, yeah. the deal with the birds where he's like, well, I'll explain this, but only if we get first prize, um, you know, because he's obviously going to be performing this in a, you know, in a, a competition of some kind, <laughs> like it's literally, you're going to, you, if you, if you keep your eyes open for that stuff, it's hilarious. And, and a big, 
something that kind of got a lot of laughs from me was when the different characters start showing up, you know, mm-hmm. um, and Pistotyros is like, where are these people coming from? And you have the priest <laughs> and you have the con man and you have the Meton, the geometrician. Um, and, you know, this also is that kind of, you know, commentary on, you know, in when you form a city, certain people are going to show up. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what you all make of the different characters um, that just kind of pop in. And also Pisitiris is just like, what are you doing here? Get away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, part of part of me wonders how effective the fist is or what the basis of the fist is, because what Pisitiris ends up doing, I think in every case, is punching them and they leave, right? And they're, they're puzzled, you know. How is it that the diplomatic relations with this new city have suddenly ended up by getting punched in the nose? Um, so that that's interesting to me. In other words, on what basis does Pesateros think he can do that, right? Um, is it because his city is different in kind that it's able um, to have immediately hostile relations with uh, anything that encounters it uh, without repercussions? Um, or is he mistaken? Uh, it seems to me like uh, Aristophanes is suggesting that if we would just punch these people in the nose when they came to bother us, uh, we would get away with it and they'd stop bothering us. So I have, I have a little trouble getting inside that insight. Yeah, I have to, have to say that this part of the play, there's something very satisfying about that, right? I mean, these oh, people yeah. are tiny <laughs> and small. And sometimes one does just think, like, really, do I have to deal with these people? And Alcibiades, the Pestatyros character, Alcibiades, doesn't, right? He just finds a, a good solution. Um, that, that's remarkably satisfying, I think, for us as an audience. On the other hand, again, there's this under, darker undercurrent that it, it leads in this direction we keep referring to of, of uh, the eating of the birds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, could it be something like this? That um, So prior to the eating of the birds, and really even prior to um, Pesotiris's assumption of uh, a godlike condition is the wall. And maybe we should talk a little bit about the wall. It looks like, uh, so, so the birds build a wall somehow between the earth and heaven so that um, the mutual commerce, let's say, the mutually satisfying commerce of gods and men is interrupted. And uh, it's either going to be discontinued or the birds are somehow going to be able to manage it, right? And so gather, uh, what would we say, revenue from uh, a commerce that goes across their borders. Um, and maybe that there's a connection between that as um, a power that this city has that no other city has, and the ease which, with which somebody as um, otherwise cunning as uh, Peseretos is able just to dismiss all the supplicants that come to him, right? In other words, if you didn't have a city that really had the power of separating gods and men, then you couldn't behave in the, in the very satisfying way that he behaves. Does that make some sense? Well, that's right. And also, um, other cities uh, have power over us ordinarily, right? And maybe that they've been deprived of that power because it's somehow related to their sense of their connection with the gods. Yeah. Well, when the gods do show up, you know, when, when, uh, Iris shows up and when we get the kind of final act, um, and how Pesotiris kind of maneuvers himself to become the God, you know, we see that same kind of force of will, right. 
where Pistotyros is, you know, kind of arguing with Iris, um, you know, around line 1235 or so. Um, and uh, let's see, where is the... I mean, she's basically just arguing, you know, but, but, but I'm a God, mm. but I'm a God. <laughs> and he's just like, I don't, I don't care. It doesn't, right. it doesn't make any difference to me yeah, yeah. Um, because he's, he's kind of, he has Olympus, he, he's sieged Olympus, right? Mm -hmm. He's, 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 he's built a wall between um, the humans and the, and the sacrifices that gods can make um, and, uh, or the sacrifice the humans can make to the gods and it's, it's starving them out. Mm -hmm. And, and through that tactic, you know, he gets all kinds of um, uh, concessions from the gods until they finally let him take on Sovereignty mm -hmm. as, as his wife. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's interesting to me because to a certain extent, you know, if you have Sovereignty as your wife, um, you know, you have rule over yourself. You know, you are a sovereign in and of yourself, mm -hmm. which is kind of what Pistyrus wanted initially, right? When he left Athens, he wanted mm -hmm. to just not have to deal with the lawgivers and not have to deal with the debt collectors and not have to deal with the tax collectors. And now he's got it, but he's not, he got it through gaining power over others. And so it's, it, it's, it's there's some kind of commentary on the political class um, and, you know, what that, what that potentially does to someone who, or what's required to have sovereignty over yourself mm -hmm. and what goes along with it and what kind of happens to an individual when you get it. Right. Or am I, I reading add, too much into that? And in my translation, the woman is just called Miss Universe. <laughs> <laughs> he marries Miss Universe. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I have princess, which I think falls between the two somehow. Oh, yes. wow. Yeah. Yeah, mine is just sovereignty, and it's just called yeah, yeah. sovereignty. Okay. I don't know if that's the actual, which one is it? Miss Universe is probably the actual Greek term. Probably is, uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> it's I, a wonderful translation either way. I'm very suspicious of this translation. <laughs> Can I circle back, though, because I, I think it's relevant, I'm just another handhold into a, a, a difficult nut to crack in a way, um, to words and their wingedness. Um, and Jeff's point about um, how other nations, other peoples seem to have no claim in this particular city once they've isolated themselves from the gods. I'd like to extend that to the discussion of words and lying um, that I referred to at the beginning when Alcibiades, uh, Pestatyros is seducing the birds to his plan. I should have said more, that a lie obviously has some truth to it, mm -hmm. but then you sort of slowly just switch out a little part and and those, those switch outs sort of accumulate until eventually you get to the wrong conclusion. And so it's a, it's a mishandling of words, but that means that there's also a proper handling of words. Mm -hmm. And so it looks like words, although winged, have a, have a somewhat um, a dual nature, or it looks like they have a dual nature, which then is resolved into a single nature that's violated by Pestatyra. So let me flesh that out. That we can move people with words and poetry and political speeches to inflame their passions and lead them off the path of rationality, which in Greek would be logos, but logos is also speech. Um, mm -hmm. um, but it also looks like since you know, since you can analyze these things and see that you've been let off the path, 
that must mean that there's an inherent rationality to, to words and their combinations, mm-hmm. which means that there's some kind of inherent lawfulness to words. Mm-hmm. And that although this character Pestatarus is very good at using words and manipulating people to inflame their passions, um, it also looks like when other people, even petty people, come to appeal to them and he punches them on the nose, right, we see that really his way of being in this play is not to see the actual rationality that's, that is available to be seen even in his speech, mm-hmm. right? that, that there's a fundamental violation of that because of an overemphasis on the raw passions without their proper combination with rationality. Mm-hmm. Can we apply this um, standard or this way of thinking of an account, right, that even a lying account somehow has um, within it the um, basis for a truthful account, to um, the side of this story that we haven't um, put so much weight on, which is the the side of the gods. Um, I take it one of the claims of the play is that the gods are human beings with wings, right? In other words, they're a cross between humans and birds somehow. They're just humans who can fly. Um, What's the respect in which that's a lie? And what's the respect in which it's true? Right? To the extent that it's true, it seems to endorse Pesaretus's procedure. Right? And we would say he literally becomes a god. He's a human being with wings at the end. To the extent that it's a lie or not the whole truth, right? he is not a god. He's just called a god by the end. And I don't quite know how to, how to sort that out. So what, what is uh, your guy's sense of that question? Well, is, is Hopo... <clears throat> an example of what can happen when you try that? You know, because Hopo or Tyrius has kind of done this already, right? He's kind of in charge of the birds. He's left the city, but he didn't found a city, right? And so there was something missing. And so, you know, when he shows up and he's kind of disheveled, at least in my translation, where his kind of feathers are falling off because he tried to be kind of a god, he tried to be a bird and a man, but he just didn't do a really good job of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but... So Pisatyrus, that might be his future, or he might have kind of sealed his um, uh, grandeur by marrying sovereignty, by, by you know, starving out the gods. Uh, he gets closer to that godlike function. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess how much is, you know, what we see in the beginning with Tereus tied to what we see at the end with Pisatyrus? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Two things occur to me, Jeff, that one is much darker than the other, and, I, and I'm going to have to take a little more time to think through it. But let's start with something simple and more obvious. I prefer to always start there. I hope it's obvious and then, then work up to more difficult things and make sure my foundation is solid or check it. But, so if I start with something simple, um, you asked, what do we make of the, the presentation of gods as just human beings with wings? Um, aside from the obvious fact that um, human beings with, with wings don't look like they can actually fly, but (laughs) (laughs) something simpler. Um, And that is its emphasis is on the bodily, Mm -hmm. physical shape of them. And in fact, uh, as opposed to something like a more elevated mind or what we've been calling rationality, which looks like it might be the deeper way in which words ought to be used or eros even ought to be used. Um, So they don't have that. And in fact, some of their behavior is rather uh, suspect uh, Hercules, who I guess literally is kind of a this bastard in between being, but 
um, he's very easy to manipulate because he just wants to eat. Right. <laughs> so he's appetitive, right? More so than um, even uh, Euphrates has disappeared by this point, right? We're not even uh, talking wedding feasts. He just wants like steak, right? Um, or is whatever. that barbecue? He says. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so we could start there. So from that perspective, um, the gods actually look less impressive than Pistachyros, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they don't seem to have the mind involved, um, but they're also, their passions seem to be smaller, right? They're, they want some sort of um, resolution with the human beings, because as Brian pointed out, they're not getting sacrifices, and it turns out in this play that they live on the smoke of the sacrifices, so they're starving. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the sort of obvious, um, I think, groundwork but it leaves me with a suggestion of what um, Aristophanes thinks more generally the gods are, since they actually do get over, overthrown. Maybe that's too strong, but at the end, it does look like Pestataros is successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might lead us in a very dark direction. Right. Just to uh, connect this to Brian's question, also it looks like Pesataros is a superior type as compared to Terius, right? Who has more or less walked uh, Pesataros's path. He, he married um, a, a woman, but because he stayed in the city he was in and he lusted after the woman's sister, uh, tragic events ensued, right? And so he eventually gets turned into birds, along, uh, a bird along with his, uh, his relatives. But it looks like uh, Pesatyrus might be able, at least um, initially, to avoid that tragedy, right? That he's founded a city where this uh, uh, problem might not arise. Okay, so I think now we're at the, the darkest of dark questions. Right. <laughs> the, the play ends with Pesatyrus being entirely successful, although he's eating the birds, but the birds are not objecting to this at this point. Um, is there anything we see in the play to suggest that um, this project wouldn't work or ought not to work? I think the ought not to work, we've seen it maybe a little bit with the examination of words, but um, does it look simply like it actually could work? And if Pestatyros is actually a better version of the gods, are we supposed to think that the that the Previous societies were doing exactly what Pestatyros was doing, even with their um, the gods um, playing a different role than they're playing here. But in fact, with Pestatyros, the situation is somewhat higher because he's higher. Hmm. Now, I, I, I'm inclined to want to say that that can't be right, but we need to know why. Well, here's one thought. I don't know how helpful this is, but... Pesatyros is supposed to be a bird at the end, right? He's somehow been transformed. It's not clear whether the root that is eaten leads to hallucinations or whether it leads to the literal growth of wings, but uh, they're depicted as having wings by the end. Um, I wonder to what extent that closes off or limits um, Pesatyrus's attachment to other human beings, right? So I'm thinking of this erotic attachment to boys at the beginning, um, and I'm wondering whether that uh, persists in the end phase. Um, another observation, the, so this uh, Miss Universe or Princess, um, it's just uh, uh, the, the feminine form of kingship in the Greek. And maybe she's not 
a real human being, right? Uh, <laughs> maybe this Miss Universe isn't a real, a real human being. So I don't know. The only hope I can see for some limits on his tyranny, right, uh, would be some sense that he has changed himself so that uh, some of his earlier desires have been closed off. If not, I think we're stuck in the same, the classic t- tyrannical problem. We, we are now ruled by a God who wants to make use of our bodies as he sees fit and is uh, powerful enough to persuade us that it's in our interest that he do so. And there's nothing that really limits what he wants. I think that actually is the ending of the, of the play. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's her, I mean, that, 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 that it's a deep critique of, of a certain political system and how one gets there. That is this sense of what looks high-minded uh, dedication to love and friendship, but, but it turns out that it's not properly married to logos or rationality. And so there's, it has no limit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I'm still left with that dark question of... Um, if it's the case that the gods are actually just poor versions of Pestatyros, and I'm looking here at the gods as being maybe what would normally limit appetites in a city and serve as the, at least the mythic foundation for the authority of the laws, if nothing more. If Pestatyros is better than that, how are we supposed to think about actual Athens or actual political orders that claim not to be tyrannical? In other words, is the suggestion actually that they all are? Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I, yeah. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. I think that actually might be a, a good question to end on because we're coming up on an hour here. Um, Excellent. We should so, always we have no answers. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's also, I mean, anytime you end on, uh, you know, hopelessness, uh, tyranny and boy love i feel like you've really you've, you've hit the top that you makes for a good podcast <laughs> yeah i mean you want to talk about a broad audience i mean uh, yeah, yeah. a lot of people were like oh you guys are just going straight pop culture and just doing aristophanes come on you know <laughs> sure that's going to be our big critique mm-hmm. uh, well, anyway let me just add one more yeah. thing which i think uh just makes it a little more depressing if if you Elpides uh is really socrates Yes. Right. I, Mr. I, Mr. Good Hope. Mm-hmm. Um, him, him leaving halfway through is a, is a terrible critique of Socrates. Maybe he could have done something with uh, the Alcibiades stand-in, but he left. Uh, so that, that just, to me, compounds the darkness of the ending. Right. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so I think if, if the Cohen brothers ever listen to this one, this will be their next project as far as very dark comedies. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, Lise, and thank you, Jeff. Thank you, um, Brian. Thank you. And uh, uh, we will see you all in the next uh, Combat Classics podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.